0: On the bridgeside broadcast, the only Fox station to be given the seal of approval from those awesome and friendly fellows at the Guilds. I am your announcer, and I am absolutely delighted to be presenting another edition of Tales of Malifaux, a collection of rip-snorting old chestnuts. Before we start, I would like to bring your attention to an exciting new initiative we are trialling here at the station: Evox free broadcasts. Yes. That's right. All the fun and indoctrination of the Beachside broadcast anywhere, anytime, anyhow. How it works is really quite simple. All you need to do is grab a few wires, rub them together, and finally lose your fragile grip on reality. It's a doddle. We have already tried it on a few of the staff in the advertising department and they loved it. They were screaming about it and laughing. So, so much fun. If this sounds like something you'd like to be part of, just cut out and collect three stamps from the newspaper and mail them in. Now I bring you our first story. Surprise! N- no, n- not a surprise. That's the name of it. Uh, I'm wasted in this place. Roll the audio. Surprise.
1: Surprise. As diversions went, it was not initially a spectacular success. The explosion, large and impressive though it was, elicited little more than a cloud of dust and a wave of apathy. The citizens of Malifaux dealt with death and tragedy daily. Men and women were injured or killed in the mines or succumbed to the dangers inherent in any frontier, whether it be nature, the Neverborn, or predations of their fellow man on a regular basis. When pain and horror were simply part of life's rich tapestry, anything that did not affect the average citizen directly was usually safely ignored and so it was as the noise of the blast echoed away into the grey sky. When the cloud of dust settled, it was clear that a large section of the Guild Forensics building had collapsed into an enormous sewer channel beneath it. Guild Scriveners, still sitting in their office chairs, most in a state of shock, peered over the edges of ruined floors, looking straight down into the dark pit that had suddenly opened up beside them. As other Guild officers hurried to the scene, the people in the streets barely ceased talking and bartering and arguing to let them pass, All that changed, however, when the survivors, miraculous that there could be any, crawled out of the ragged pit and started trying to eat their rescuers. As the screams and shouts rang out and the stench of decay spread like a miasma of doom, it became clear that something had been waiting in the sewers beneath. These were not survivors, but a horde of the undead, and what had been a rescue attempt by the Guild quickly turned into a frantic battle. The distinctive, percussive crack of the Guild Peacebringer punctuated the screams, the large-caliber weapons tearing out chunks of decomposed flesh and shattering dry bones into clouds of grey. But the tide of undead could not be halted so easily. They fell upon the guild guard lines in unstoppable force, and the living were smothered in a biting, clawing wave of mindless savagery. Seamus picked his way carefully to the rim of the crater, patting at his coat to dislodge the dust, and whistling to himself amid the carnage. In his hand he held a dismembered head by a tangle of hair. He lifted the head up high to inspect the red carnival of dismemberment and disemboweling that surrounded the pair. It's going well, Philip, my boy. He went theatrically as a pair of kidneys flopped onto the rubble at his feet. He kicked them back into the fray. That'll hurt come morning. Those, those people, those officers, show some mercy. Call them off, you madman, Philip cried. Are you're so tightly wound, Philip, me old sausage. Got to learn to relax. I would say you were risking a heart attack. Let's be honest, that would be a minor miracle if you would have one of those, no? James said with a wink. See, being a head sure has an upside. But you never thought of it that way, sure. Why are you showing me this? James grabbed Philip in both hands, looking him right in the eyes, the twinkle in his own suddenly gone. I'm a student just like you, Philip. Many of men's greatest discoveries have been at the cost of his fellow's. Today's events bring me closer to the greatest discovery in all of history. It's the same thing you were studying, Philip. Looking horrified that Seamus would suggest any sort of kinship with him, Philip blurted, What discovery? The spirit, Philip. The grave spirit. Did you just think the people of old Malifaux worked out how to control death itself over their morning coffee? It's all in the oldest books, Philip. Hidden in alchemical metaphors and puzzles in the margins, but I found them, Philip. I found them all. It was real. It showed them the way. The grave spirit. He paused and licked his lips. And if I was mad, I would probably cackle insanely at this point. But I think we know Philip, you and me. And we are many things. But I am not mad. Philip showed no sign of comprehension at all. His eyes wide as Seamus' gaze bore into him. What? What are you talking about? Seamus cried out in frustration. Kythera, Philip! It's all about Kythera. It is where the people of Old Malifaux finally found the grave spirit, and where we will find it. You and I will go there together and finish your research. Although, unlike last time, you will go there in a bag. Kythera, Philip whispered in dread. I always knew that I would find my way back to that terrible place. Then we are in agreement, old cabbage. I'm glad to see you're willing, James said just as a bullet punched through his hat, knocking it to the ground. Across the wreckage from him, reinforcements of death marshals leveled their peace bringers in his direction. Oi, marshals? That blind nuisance won't be far behind. She can't get enough of me, you see. Well, she's only human. This was a great talk, Philip. We'll have to pick this up another time, Philip spoke quickly, stuffing the protesting head back into his bag. He leaped off the heap of rubble back down into the sewer. A short distance behind him, the death marshals gave chase. Inside the intact parts of the forensics building, the sounds of battle were muffled. The plaster in the ceiling had cracked in the initial collapse and flaked down around McMorning and his assistant. Sebastian held the gorgon's tear in a pair of birthing forceps at arm's length. No jewel had such a storied past as the tear. Every owner, save Seamus, had died with it in their possession, their death serving to further empower the gem. So what do I do with this? How am I supposed to know? I've never used the thing before. Keep it away from me, McMorning replied, jabbing three fingers against the evil eye as Sebastian walked by. The girl's in the last column of drawers. Make it quick. I don't want to be here when Seamus brings this building down too. He said it would be a small explosion. I'll show him small explosion next time we meet. Sebastian, ignoring McMorning's urgency, inched over to the drawer that held Molly Squidpidge's body as if the tear itself might explode. He pulled the drawer open. Molly had died several weeks ago, but her body showed no sign of decay. Her flesh was milky white and smooth, like perfect porcelain. The chest wound that caused her death had begun to bleed again. It was an eerie sight, and he watched, fascinated, as the blood stained her grave clothes, like red roses blooming. Molly coughed, a great stream of blood erupting from her mouth. Startled, Sebastian dropped the tear. The green jewel fell, bouncing onto Molly's belly. The corpse shuddered, and she clasped the gem in both hands with a natural quickness. Black eyes gazed up at Sebastian, and with a gasp, Molly called for her murderer and master. Seamus! Sebastian, dumbfounded, stared stupidly at the reanimated Miss Squidpage lying before him. McMorning slapped him on the back of the head. Yes, you freak of nature, he said to Molly. Get up and we'll take you to him. Come along now, quickly. Molly reached up, the white fingers of her empty hand curling into Sebastian's shirt collar, using him for leverage to lift herself. Sebastian shuddered with revulsion, but quickly helped her to her feet and off the slab. She held him tight. Her other hand clutched the Gorgon's tear against her breast. Seamus splashed through the sewer. Reaching a bend in the channel, he pressed his back against the stones. In the darkness, he could hear the creak and rustle of his undead followers. He whispered softly, I will miss you when the marshals take you. You all deserve the rest they will give you. though, she's different. You understand. From behind, more boots could be heard, and the flare of a torch glowed, growing in brightness. Seamus peeked around the corner at his pursuers and saw that the officers carried coffins on their backs. The sunken faces of the Death Marshals were just as gruesome as those of the zombies they hunted, the torchlight highlighting their sunken features, making the faces beneath their wide-brimmed hats look like fleshless skulls. Chamus lifted his hand, and when the Marshals closed to just a dozen yards away, he dropped his arm, signaling his minions to attack. Flooding from the darkness, the undead shrieked and swarmed the Marshals, who reacted without hesitation. Hefting a revolver, one Marshal unloaded six quick shots blowing the heads off six of the zombies as they approached. Avoiding the hail of gunfire, a zombie leapt at one of the marshals, and he caught her out of the air by her neck. Turning, he choke-slammed her into an open casket at his feet, sealing it closed with the kick of his boot. The soldiers of the guild worked with cold efficiency. Dispatching each undead assailant with swift, practiced movements. Seamus, biting his lip, watched in awe, truly impressed with their abilities at the same time as he mourned the loss of his bells. He grimaced as one of the marshals threw his coffin and hit a zombie in the face, cracking her skull against rough stonework. Another slid his casket through the water, sweeping the legs out from under one of Seamus' lovely creations, causing her to topple forward into the pine wood box. The lid snapped shut, capturing the creature inside. Still more fell as revolver shots gunned for the one place they were vulnerable, the head. As the numbers of zombies thinned, only one marshal had fallen to the ambush. "'One marshal at the center of the battle knelt down and hastily sketched an arcane symbol on the lid of the coffin at his feet before pulling the lid off. "'A purple light flashed and ghostly tendrils whipped out of the casket to latch on to the remaining undead assailants. "'A tendril lifted one of the creatures up into the air and with a quick tug drew her into the coffin, "'the zombie completely swallowed by that purple light, its feet kicking helplessly just before vanishing. "'Shamus took that as the sign to make his departure.' He blew his girls a kiss and stomped on the detonator box at his feet. With an air-splitting roar, the stone channel collapsed around the death marshals. If it didn't crush them, it certainly sealed them off from Seamus. Seamus, lighting his own torch, started down the channel to make good his escape. You were right to talk me out of it, Sebastian. This is another case where one of those newfangled bicycles simply would not do. McMorning heaved Molly over the horse's saddle as the assistant tugged on her arms from the opposite side. Recent reanimation had a detrimental effect on the woman's balance, and she'd fallen off the horse several times. The earlier attempts with the bicycle were best forgotten. Eventually, McMorning had decided to just stow her like baggage and be done with it. With the woman in place, McMorning climbed atop his own horse and they rode off. They had agreed to meet Seamus at a culvert that drained into the swamp at the outskirts of the city. As they began to ride away from the forensics building, a guild officer rode out to meet them. Raising his hand, the officer flagged them down. I'm sorry, Dr. McMorning. No one's allowed to leave the crime scene until everyone is interviewed and accounted for. In no mood to discuss the issue with the man, McMorning simply drew the shotgun holstered against his saddle and shot the surprised man square in the chest.
0: our sponsors. This is an urgent appeal from the Guild Forensics Department. Recently, our buildings were attacked by the vile, heinous criminal Seamus, aka the Mad Hatter. An explosive device set by Seamus went off, taking some of our building work and a large section of our wall as well. Without that wall, our hard work in the Guild Forensics Department is at risk. From the Neverborn, from the undead, from common folk like you. That last one is the worst for sure. This is a state of affairs that can't be allowed to go on. We need volunteers, willing or unwilling, we don't mind really, to take up arms and get this wall rebuilt. People with shovels for hands would be really handy, actually. With your help, we can keep important guild officials that you'll never meet safe from people like you. For just a few days' work, you'll be making a difference. To help, just do nothing. We'll call you. Thank you. Now, to our second story, Doppelganger.
1: Doppelganger. Mind if I'd share the buggy with you? The girl asked. Victoria was lifting her luggage onto the back of the horse-drawn cab. She looked over her shoulder at the girl and nodded. Sure thing, kid. Hop in. Victoria waited until Alice was climbing in to add, And while you're at it, you can tell me why you've been following me. To her credit, Alice barely skipped a beat and climbed on up. only if you answer a few questions of mine, too. Victoria smiled at the audacity of the girl as she followed Alice into the coach. "'We're waiting on one more passenger before we depart,' the coachman explained in passing. Victoria kept her sword with her at all times, and it was balanced on the floor of the cab, the grip resting against her shoulder. Alice nodded at it. "'Is it really a mess Mooney?' Victoria slid her hand up underneath the sword's suko, where the blade entered the scabbard. Extending her thumb, the blade slid up to reveal the polished metal." A shadow in the steel described a simple Nipponese glyph. That's what I've been told, Victoria responded. What is your interest in Masamune's? My interest? None. If a weapon's not made by Smith or Wesson, I'm not interested. Our client, though, is very interested in antiques. She collects them. If I'm going to make it easy on you and let you travel with me, you're going to have to make yourself useful. I can't have you plotting to rob me. I'll have to kick you out and make you track me on foot. "'You're familiar with Clover's Pact?' the older woman asked. Alice responded from rote. "'Anyone that did mercenary work knew Clover's Pact. "'It provided a framework that allowed mercenaries to work together "'with a commonly acknowledged set of guidelines. "'The Pact was forged by placing one's hand on the shoulder of the other, "'and doing so, Alice stated, "'My purpose will not injure your own.' "'Victoria seemed satisfied by the pledge and responded in kind. "'When the door of the coach opened and a young woman stood there with her child. "'Sorry I'm late.' The woman appeared to be in her early twenties, and had a thick mane of dark hair. In her arm, she managed to hold a small boy, his teddy bear, and a small wooden box. She helped the child into the coach, and he clambered into the seat across from the two women. Victoria couldn't place it, but there was something unsettling about the child. The teddy bear had one of its button eyes missing, a tuft of stuffing peeking out the hole. The coachman appeared at the woman's side and held out his hand. I can stow that box with the rest of the luggage. No. This will stay with me. The coachman helped the young woman inside, and she sat beside her child. The coachman closed the door. All right, we'll set off now. It's a few hours to the Delta Six site. As the coach began to move, the young woman introduced herself. My name is Dora, and this young gentleman is Cade. I'm Victoria, and this is my sister Alice, Victoria lied smoothly. Oh, it's very nice to meet you both, Dora said, smiling warmly. What sort of appointment do you have at Delta Six, if I may ask? We are looking for someone, Victoria replied. And you, Dora? Where's your business at Delta Six? No offense, ma'am, but I wouldn't take you for a hardy explorer type. Oh, me? Dora shook her head and little Kate giggled at her side. I don't have any business at that place. I came here to meet you. Victoria's thumb eased a sword out of its scabbard just a fraction. There was something wrong with these two, and her eyes kept being drawn back to the box. Her breathing slowed and her heart started to race. Explain yourself. She did say you were a bit rude. I've come to give you this. Dora held out the box and opened it as the child beside her giggled again. The laugh was different this time. It sounded dry and dark. They're never born, Alice cried, drawing a massive clockwork revolver and firing a shot straight at the child in one fluid motion. The shot could not possibly have missed at such close range. But other than a small black hole between its eyes, the child looked unharmed. Victoria now saw the signs Alice had picked up on. His flesh seemed almost translucent, the veins throughout his body clearly visible. His eyes, too, were bloodshot, tidy, spinary veins radiating around red pupils. The child grinned as a trickle of black ichor leaked from the wound between its eyes. Stunned, Victoria hesitated, and in that brief moment of hesitation, Dora opened the box and a thick green vapour spilled forth to instantly fill the small carriage. Too late, Victoria drew her sword and thrust in one swift motion, but the blade passed harmlessly through the vapour. She could see nothing around her. The coach and passengers were gone. Then shapes appeared in the green fog. Slowly the fog drew back and the shapes solidified into a forest of twisted, leafless trees. A sickly yellow sky showing through the spidery canopy. The coach was nowhere to be seen, and she found she was sitting not on a bench, but a tree stump. She sprang to her feet, the matamune held ready. "'Alice!' Her answer was the sound of a quick series of large-caliber shots that must have been the heavy revolver Alice had drawn from beneath her cloak. Victoria set off in the direction of the sounds when she glimpsed the silhouette of a woman. Victoria sheathed her sword at her hip, though she positioned it for a quick draw. In its scabbard, the sword seemed less threatening. But in the hands of a skilled swordswoman, this position offered the benefit of a lightning-fast draw and slash. Identify yourself or forfeit your life. The woman stepped forward and into the light. Standing across the clearing from Victoria was a perfect doppelganger, an exact copy of herself. That's a better trick than the box, I'll give you that. She circled, watching her footing, waiting for an opening. Where were you when I was clothes shopping? The doppelganger spoke with Victoria's own voice. The tapestry of fate weaves itself around you, Victoria. You stand at the center of it. If I kill you here and take your place, I will realize the destiny that was meant for you. A human will not save this world. It belongs to us. You certainly talk more than I do. So are you the ally, or the conspiracy? Ah, never mind. I'll work it out when you're dead. The doppelganger roared in charge, sword drawn. It was truly a monster now, mouth curled into a wide smile, showing a row of jagged, shark-like teeth. Its eyes were wide with maddened glee, and its arms stretched overhead, raising the sword to strike. Where the doppelganger was fire, rage, and passion, Victoria was cool, fluid, and graceful. Her movements were lithe and controlled as she drew her sword, darted forward, and struck. Their swords clashed, leaving the masamune ringing softly as Victoria spun away. But the doppelganger matched her for speed, and was on her without pause, scything her sword one-handed towards Victoria's neck. Time stretched, elastic. The sweeping sword blade slowed and Victoria could see the remnant wisps of the green vapour parting before the razored edge, like the clouds drifting past some sharp mountain peak. Held in a pocket at her hip, Victoria could feel the soulstone given to her by the old crone flare with a sudden heat. Warmth pulsed through her like a summer breeze. Looking at the doppelganger, she could see a flickering green aura surrounding it. Superimposed over her duplicate was another creature, a spirit. Formless and featureless, she could nonetheless see eyes like embers floating in the aura her agent's sword stirred in her hand. Victoria dipped beneath the doppelganger's strike, time so obliging in the soulstone's heat, its sword cutting through the air above her. The Masamune swept through the body of the doppelganger, but left no wound, passing clean through but catching hold of the spirit and tearing it from the doppelganger's form. All but bisected by Victoria's sword, the spirit writhed in soundless agony. It blistered and blackened, and in an instant, The phantom boiled into nothingness. Victoria's double fell to all fours and was violently sick. She coughed and black Ica streamed from her mouth. The legend of the Masamune was true. And looking between the polished blade in her hand to the stricken creature on the ground, Victoria realized she had slain the demon and spared the living. The doppelganger had recovered, and wiping the black mess from her chin, looked up. "'Behind you!' it cried. "'Victoria!' Sensing the movement with such clarity, it was as if she could see through her double's eyes, reversed the sword deftly, and drove the naked blade behind her. There was a gasp as the point of the blade sank into her would-be attacker. She twisted the blade, snapped it free, and turned, stepping back. The never-born woman Dora stood there, eyes wide with shock and pain. She held a dagger intended for Victoria's back. Victoria's blade had left a gaping wound in her belly from which black smoke coiled. Betrayed? Dora whispered, before her body burst into a cloud of green smoke. All around, the twisted forest blurred, as if in a dream, and reality asserted itself again. The coach stood nearby, though the coachman lay face down in the grass, a bloody wound at the back of his neck. The doppelganger remained. Victoria kicked her fallen sword away, put the point of the Masamune to her throat and stood her up. The creature was still never born but it had clearly warned her, and against her own kind. What was happening here? I should kill you now. The doppelganger spoke softly, Victoria's sword still pressing into the pale flesh of her throat. I would if I were you. Victoria paused, and then laughed. You would at that. Maybe you're a better copy of me than that Dora witch had planned. I think I'm going to let you live. For now. A succession of earthy swear words came rolling out a nearby stance of rhododendrons, and Alice emerged, caked head to toe in a Neverborn's black blood. This stuff stings like a whore pox, flea ridden son of a... The girl's eyes grew wide as she spotted the two Victoria standing beside the wagon. Great. She threw her hands up and started checking the damage to the carriage, huffing and puffing. You're beautiful, you have a magic sword, and now you can make copies of yourself? This is so unfair. Why does everyone get to do cooler stuff than me?
0: And that is us all wrapped up for another week. I do hope you had a great day and don't get trapped in some inner wilderness from which you can't escape. How are you going to keep up to date with your favorite Fox program otherwise? Come on now. We'll be back on Tales of Power next time Stay tuned next for sound advice from Ridge. The famed explorer Henry Morton Will be giving you some tips For when your clockwork trap just won't get off your leg And remember, do stay safe out there Bad things happen